You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Hello and welcome to another episode of the TNA podcast. Um, so we have here one of the best or most decorated um, youth or grassroots soccer coaches in the Asian region, uh, very well known around the region, Tom Bayer. Uh, he's our special guest on the, di- on the night and I also have Shivan joining in from Malaysia. Uh, how are you guys? Good, I'm fine. I'm here out in Tokyo, so it's uh, great to be with you guys tonight. Uh, thanks for thanks for your time, Tom. I uh, know that you're a busy person, developing football. So, thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem. Shivan, you there from Malaysia? How are things there? Okay, hello everyone. Uh, once again, it's uh, happy to be back on the show. And uh, the fact that I know that this uh, this weekend we're going to have a recording with Tom. And I just couldn't afford to miss this opportunity to talk about football with him because um, he, as what Shankar has mentioned, you know, he's one of the most renowned uh, grassroots football coaches out there. So it's always interesting to hear from his from his angle on football as we know what it is today. Okay, excellent. So, uh, Tom, rather than me telling our listeners about yourself. Uh, it would be really uh, wonderful if you could say uh, what you do and football and how you ended up there doing what you do. Sure, guys. Um, I mean, I've been in Japan for over 30 years. Um, I got involved in Japanese football as a player first, played for Hitachi FC, which now plays in the uh, the Japanese J-League under Kashiwa Reysol. I came here pre-J-League. Um, back in the mid to late 1980s, mm-hmm. um, and you know, football was uh, was was pretty popular already. It was very well organized, but there was no professional league as we know it today. Um, all of the teams were owned and operated by by iconic uh, companies such as Hitachi, the club I was at, Panasonic, Toyota, um, Yamaha. You know, all the big corporations out here. Um, and 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 I got I got out of playing. I, I retired from playing back in 1988. I, I finished, um, and I I fell in love with Japan and wanted to stay here. Uh, and I tried to figure out a way that I could stay connected with football. Mm-hmm. So I, I quickly got involved in uh, youth development, not on a real kind of deep, serious level. Um, it was more through going around the country. Um, with a sponsor, I, I had a sponsor this, uh, from Nestle, um, a drink called Milo, which I know we have in M- Malaysia and in Australia. In fact, it yeah, was a, even in it was India. A, yeah, that's it's right. It's, it's around the region, so it's kind of seen as a nutritional drink for children. Mm-hmm. And I convinced Nestle to sponsor me doing a round of of what we call football clinics, um, mm. and that was just going around the country kind of entertaining kids, keeping them busy, a little juggling, a little passing, shooting, mini games, things like that. And uh, that started in 1989. And um, it actually, be- it came to become a- and grow into a very big program um, where I was doing 50 events a year. Uh, mm-hmm. And it-, it went for 10 years. So there's a bit of a timeline. So from 1989, I started doing these big Nestle clinics um, I still didn't really have a philosophy or a methodology other than I just wanted to be around kids, wanted to be around the game, 
I had started taking some of my coaching licenses as well. I'm still not sure where my, what the trajectory, where the direction was that I was going to go. Um, and then I think the big key point was in the early 1990s, um, a former pl- England striker, uh, national team player, a fellow by the name of Paul Mariner, mm-hmm. who became a good friend of mine. He convinced me to get in uh, interested in the work of a Dutchman named Will Kerber. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I did that. And uh, I was fascinated by all the technical work. Um, I was fascinated about, you know, the foundation being mostly ball mastery, um, then breaking it down to different moves and, you know, attacking style of football, uh, mm-hmm. teaching players how to take other players on uh, one versus one, different components um, are the technical components, individual components of, of player development. So I really got interested in that. And then on, on a commercial business side, I brought that um, concept to Japan and created a, um, which started out to be just a couple of, of, of real football schools, actually, around the area here in Tokyo. Um, and it's very important to understand what these schools were and, and why, how they operated, because they didn't function as a club team. They functioned as a, a solution to the problem, which is, you know, football is a hit or a miss depending upon where you live will depend upon the quality of the coaching you have. And in the grassroots segment, when we talk about grassroots, I'm talking about the ages of 6 to 12 because that's the age here in Japan. That, that's an elementary school. That's the um, how they categorize it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of kids will be coached by inexperienced um, coaches, you know, often sometimes parents, um, but mm-hmm. even, you know, former, coach, uh, former players. But there wasn't a lot of um, technical, specific, specialized co- coaching going on. So this fit right right in place with what was needed. So we we built we created these schools and we were supplying a solution and that was is that even if you trained at your team like, you know, two or three times a week, you weren't getting enough technical training, therefore you could come to our schools. Well, that grew into a huge organization, a huge company. Um, today, fast forward now, and this was, I'm talking, you know, 25 years ago, right? Yeah. There's over 130 of these schools all over Japan. There's about 200 full-time coaches that, that work at those schools. I spun out of that, those school business about 10 years ago, but just again, just to show you the kind of the timeline. And then the next real kind of key, um, there's two other kind of key moments in my career that are, that are quite, um, interesting in 1998, um, uh, basically I got casted on Japan's number one show for children television show mm-hmm. that was, uh, born out of the, the, um, creation of the Pokemon, which is pop culture. Yeah. And there's a very popular TV show here in Japan called Ohasta. And mm-hmm. I got casted on this show. It's not a football show. It's just a pop culture show. And, um, they created a corner based around me, um, myself, cause the corner was named after me. It's called Tom San's soccer techniques. So every weekday morning I would present this corner. But the funny thing is, is that, you know, or the remarkable thing is, is that that corner went for 14 years. So it was extremely popular. Um, And then that coupled with, you know, we're opening the schools. We basically built the schools around my, my, my appearances, my media presence on television. I was also, you know, I had two full pages in Japan's number one comic book in Japan called Korokoro Comic, which mm-hmm. has a circulation of about 1.3 million copies per month. 
Um, and then here I'm creating content. We created VHS videos back then called Tomsan Soccer Techniques that were just, you know, bestsellers. Um, and then I'm going around the country and I'm doing these events. Now I'm not doing 40 or 50 events. I'm doing 70 or 80 events a year. Wow. And we've got and we've got the J League it started up in 93. We've got the World Cup coming in 2002. So I tell people it's kind of like the perfect storm. Mm. Um, you know, the timing of when I was in Japan. And then um, a lot of other things happen and 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 then I mean I'll let you guys talk after I'm done here giving you the the kind of the background of what I did because then the next stage, which I'm in now today, which is really more of the football starts at home, mm-hmm. that's now another big, big turning point in my career um, that we can discuss a little bit. But I'll open it up for you guys to ask me any questions about it. But that's basically kind of uh, not in a nutmeg, but a nutshell of what I did <laughs> um, for the last 20 some odd years in Japan. Oh, that's a really inspiring and a really good story to hear i mean i know that uh, what you do and the things that uh, you have gone through but um yeah to actually listen it from hear it from me uh, in person that that's a really different level <laughs> really inspiring i mean uh, being a like i said uh, being a football development officer myself uh, this is something that i could really take on board um yeah, yes. I mean, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is is that so I've got a very interesting skill set of experiences, right? Um, you know, I've I've worked with many different brands, some mm-hmm. of the you know, biggest top brands in the world, Adidas, Coca-Cola, Nestle, uh, Volkswagen Group, um, I mean McDonald's, I mean I've worked with a lot of different groups. Um mm-hmm. and all of these um endorsements or brands that I've worked with, I've 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 never worked through uh, like an an agency or a management company, I basically sat in the boardroom um, convincing CEOs uh, to build strategies around some of these ideas, right? So mm-hmm. I understand there's a there's a football ecosystem out there. Mm-hmm. And you know I think it's it what happens more often than not is that things get compartmented. So if you're a coach, you're just a coach. Yeah. if you're if you're in the media, you're just in the media side. If you're on the brand side, you're brand yeah. side. If you're an amateur side or the professional side, so there's many different points um, yeah. or or different, uh, you know, it's like a, a a car engine, right? There's many different pieces, mm-hmm. but I I have a pretty good working knowledge of kind of how they all work, so mm-hmm. I'm able to understand how to link different things together, um, mm-hmm. and be able to you know go into the boardroom or go into wherever. And kind of speak the lingo, you know, when I've, when I've got to talk to some market, the head of a marketing organization like AIA Insurance for all of Asia, uh, for all of Asia, yeah. um, I've got to be able to know what I'm talking about and know what it is that, you know, how do I convince a guy like this to put money into a program for grassroots development? So, you know, it's just it's it's been a long uh, a process. Um, it, that's that's exactly what it is. It's a, a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but now I'm able to do things in other countries more by design rather than trial by error, if that makes sense. Okay, um, because you have the design in place, is it? Is it because of that? Yeah, well, no, because I'm able, you know, my, the testing ground was Japan. A lot of the things we did were trial by error. Um, mm. You know, we were, we saw what, what worked. I, you know, I went 
to football magazines here in Japan and, and convince them to give us one or two pages to create content. To, you see, what, what we did was is that it, it, all, it always came down to the same thing, and that is that if you want to be a good football player, it all starts mm-hmm. with the technical foundation. Yeah. So it's technique, technique, technique. Now, now, how do you get that out to the masses? Well, you've got to get on that. You've got to find the highest mountain peak and the biggest megaphone to shout down to everybody. Yeah. So we did that. We did that by creating kind of like an omni media approach on television, mm. creating content, uh, writing articles for magazines, whether it's football magazines, whether it's comic books using using pop culture, um, you know, whether it's going out and doing events. Um, so it's many different things, and but it's the same constant uh, message every time uh, about the mm. uh, technical. Uh, so if you look in Japan, I mean, it's it's not a fluke that you know the biggest, probably the most uh, biggest characteristic of Japanese football is that they're very good technically. The technical ability is very very high. So we were able to make that the entry level for football uh, in this mm. country, and th- and that's what one of the major problems is in made in other countries. Because a lot of countries are sitting there trying to invent the wheel, um, and they're bringing in the foreign experts from overseas that they're paying a lot of money to who are coming with a briefcase full of methodologies that worked in their home country, but they don't always necessarily transfer to the country that they're working in. Yeah, Uh, that's one one of the problems that uh, we even face here in Australia, specifically to Western Australia, because I'm looking at more of Western Australia now. Uh, so we, we do have these uh, local government councils that uh, do uh, partner with us to, and help us out in these, like the, uh, the grassroots program that we put up. Um, but after that, what happens is um, the kids really don't want to be part of football. It's just that uh, at a young age, they are part of it because we are or they, they are either forced into it or uh, they just they just want to play, kick the ball. But after a certain age, what uh, we have found here is that uh, they pretty much lose interest. Uh, is that related yeah. to some, yeah something? I think I think that's related uh, to what you just mentioned there because uh, they're not every country uh, necessarily has the same you know um, strengths um, in the game. So maybe we'll have to tweak some things here looking at what the kids want. Yeah, again, you know, I, I mean, if we kind of shift gears here and I, I, I talk about the current work that I'm doing is much, much different than what I've done the previous 20 years. Mm. Um, so I've had a complete rethink on development. Um, and, you know, the, real, the reality is I, I know what I know because I've achieved it and I've done it. I've done stuff. And so yeah. now I know that that the role that culture plays, the role that parents play, the role that environment plays, the role that that connection between a child and parent plays. For mm-hmm. me today, if I had anything I could do and I had to wave the magic wand or if I had a blank piece of paper and I, I'm working for a federation, the number one program that I would put in place would be exactly what we're doing now and that is football starts at home. And yeah. the reality is, is that the football world has not caught up to what science already knows. Yeah. And that is, is that the, the, the learning of skill acquisition or the acquisition of technical skills starts and happens at a much earlier age than supposed. 
and you've mm. got federations that basically are living, you know, a decade or two behind. Um, and if you look at a lot of their national curriculums, which I've read many of them, mm-hmm. um, and this is very important for listeners to understand, that the first time that a child comes on the radar screen of a national body federation is usually between the ages of six and nine. They lump it into a phase. They call it the discovery phase. Yeah. And in that, what they call discovery phase, they build the characteristics of a six to nine-year-old. And here's a couple of the things they say. They say they lack motor skills, short attention span. They're clumsy. So what they recommend is play fun games related to football. So this is a very Eurocentric kind of approach where they think that, you know, just let them play. It's, you know, game in play. And that does work to a certain degree in countries where there's already a football culture Mm. because kids are exposed to football much earlier than they are even outside of organized play. Therefore, your the starting point is m- much further towards the goal uh, than the typical kid in Australia or in America or in China, and and that's the reality. So all the research that I did writing our book called Football Starts at Home, I started studying a lot of the great players from many diff- different generations from different countries, and there were there were kind of two common denominators, and that was that many of the great players started between two and five years of old age and the role that the fathers and mothers played. Those are Mm. two very important points. But the football world doesn't really take that into, you know, they they, they don't really look at that because a kid hasn't started playing yet. Um, But that's one of the main reasons that there's certain cultures um, Mm. that just are like this endless assembly line of developing players now. And it's, it's, it's for me, it's much more on the culture side. It's not that there's some kind of secret sauce, specialized coaching going on for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year olds. No, by the time the little Spanish boy turns eight or nine, that kid is so good technically already that of course they're learning now tactical things. They're learning to play with their head up. They're looking for through passes. They're exactly. looking for many different things. And and the reality is, is that a majority of kids who play football around the world are technically poor. Mm. But yet we're spending, many countries are spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars trying to find that, unlock that kind of mystery on player development when they don't understand really how development really works. Mm. Yeah. So, so um, how do you think that... Uh um, how can I put this? Yeah. How do you think that if at a community level, at a very basic level, say some of the countries, uh, not taking names, but some of the countries actually um, are not up to speed, like you said. So mm-hmm. so for those countries, to, if they really are um, passionate about football and developing the game mm-hmm. um, nationally, how do you think that they can actually create that interest among these um, uh, 6 to 12-year-olds? Sure. Well, unfortunately, it's probably not going to happen at the national federation level. Mm. Um, Usually in many countries, and I just take this from experience, and trust me, I've worked around or in or with many, many, many different federations. Um, To get them to move is very difficult because the politics is exhausting inside a federation to get things Mm. going. Mm. I find um, the biggest 
best partners that I find are the professional teams. Um, in the United States, I've got a project going on, a three-year project. I just signed a contract with the Houston Dynamo of Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. And we are working on a, pro- a pro- program now to create this movement. And I call it a movement because, you know, we've got to change people's minds. That's the way that you, you create a culture is by changing people. Yeah. And so we have a, we have a program in place um, in Houston uh, where we're, we're we're engaging the community. You got to remember now. We're, what what are we when we talk about football starts at home? We're talking about there's three different levels of the game. There's the mm. entry level, there's the competition or competitive level, and then there's the elite level. Okay. Yeah. Well, at the elite level, that's not a problem. I mean, you can just hire and and and, and fire the best coaches in the world wherever yeah. you go. In the, in the competition level, that's just the, that's the competition organizing it. You know, they're playing already. It's the entry level that is the biggest problem in most countries. Mm. And that is, is that, just think of this, just think of this. So in most countries in the world, the first time you enter into organized play is usually the age of six, first grade, most mm-hmm. countries. Yes. So once that child crosses over the line into organized play, if he or she is comfortable with the ball, they have a reasonable, reasonable amount of ball mastery, when I talk about ball mastery and I talk about what are the core basic skills, stopping, starting, turning, changing direction, cutting with the ball, with no pressure, nobody mm. pressuring you, and mm. learning how to protect the ball. If that child crosses over the line and they're pretty already proficient, that kid's going to survive. That kid's going to do well. In fact, that kid will do well even coupled with the inexperienced coach. Okay, that mm. kid's going to do okay. It's the kid that crosses over the line. And a lot of things manifest. A lot of things manifest. So, for example, a kid crosses over the line. That kid is popular. Everybody wants to pair up with that kid because he or she is the best kid. That kid's the best kid. So now the coach is asking he or she to come up and demonstrate in front of the other 20 kids. So now the kid's getting this self-esteem, getting this chance at leadership. I mean, just, you know, just everything. So many things manifest in that, right? So if if you're trying to create this kind of movement, then who are the most important people that you need to get to? That's the parents. Parents, That's the parents. It's not the coaches necessarily. It's the parents. Now, not to get confused with coaches. Coaches are important, of course. I have an affection for coaches because I am one. Mm. So coaches are important, but they're usually not the ones that are responsible for a child learning technical skills or ball mastery. Mm. That's just the reality of it. They can help. They can encourage but now that I know much more behind the science and the, what happened was is that this is all based upon, you know, not me like learning this in a book, not me learning this on a coaching course or a coach's conference. This is for me getting down and actually doing it with my kids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So because I, was a tech, I have a technical coaching background, I basically created an environment inside my home with small balls, putting them all around the house. And from day one, when my kids could walk uh, and run around the house, I encouraged them to play with the ball. I discouraged them from kicking. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to condition them into always kicking the ball because I knew that the, the child needs to have time with the ball. That you need to do a certain degree of ball mastery. So it's like yeah. any sport or, or anything in life, right? You just don't give a kid, when they turn 16 years old, the keys to the car and say, go out and drive the car. They have to learn, right? How do you ignition where's the gas pedal where's the brake someone's got to go with them but no we throw kids out onto the pitch 
And yeah, okay, yeah, some kids will do well, but a majority of kids don't. So the whole idea was is that, you know, can we actually figure out, you know, what, what, first of all, backing up a little bit, I was very lucky because while I was writing the book, Football Starts at Home, I was contacted by Dr. John Rady, who is one of the foremost neuropsychiatrists in the world from Harvard Medical School. He'd heard about my work. I was working in China. Um, he was working in China. He looked me up. Long story short, we had a conversation and he took a big interest in my work. And I would just finished the manuscript for the book and he asked to read it. So I sent it to him, and then he graciously offered to write some pieces of the book for me, which was, you know, unbelievable, right? So we wound up getting the forward and the afterward for the book. Um, and now then, you know, I'm not an academic. I don't come from the science background or the medical background or the neuropsychiatry background, that's for sure, but he does. So mm. I've been very fortunate because I've spent time with Dr. Rady as well, um, both over at Harvard and Boston, um, here in, uh, in Japan, uh, other parts of America. So I've learned now. So th this is this is very very interesting, um, and and I think your listeners will, will 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 take this in as well. So so let me give you a little breakdown of what's happening with the science side of why this football starts at home worked so well for my children. Yeah. When you're doing something inside a home or around the home, that's what's considered a, a very safe, protective environment away from right, ridicule. Right. And and what happens is is that that interaction between a child and a parent and that understanding of a child's need for parental approval creates what we call a, a chemical electrical process in the brain of the child, which is called emotions. So when you can create an emotionally charged environment, that's when deep learning, long-term memory, um, that's when the magic happens. And so when I started, you know, connecting the dots by looking backwards and looking, okay, well, well, what happened with all the development of these players like a Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, mm. Iniesta, Pogba, Modric, you know, all these guys modern day, Eden Hazard. Mm. And then I started researching all these players, right? And I saw that all of them started between two and five. They all kind of credit their fathers and some of their moms with their development. And then I started realizing that this early engagement, this early start just sent the kids off in a completely different trajectory, you know, mm. before they ever even crossed into the line. And I was reading, you know, about Neymar as well and, and reading quotes from his father saying, listen, people don't understand. But down here in Brazil, kids don't fall in love with football. They fall in love with the ball. Yeah. They fall in love with the ball. They don't fall in love with the sport of football. They fall in love with the ball. That's very important to understand because falling in love with the ball leads to falling in love with football. A little, a little three, four, five, six-year-old doesn't have any idea of the context of playing on a team right. or yeah. wanting to give that ball away to somebody else. And so in Western other countries, again, I'm, I'll use Australia and Malaysia and America because that's the three of us talking where we all come from yeah. or are or, or at. And the reality is, is that we try to force the kid to fall in love with the game and the ball gets in the way because they haven't mm. mastered anything yet. So it's all hooked up. Now, not to say that we're saying that, you know, just ball mastery and, you know, being technically skilled, you're going to play like Iniesta or Modric or, or, or Pele or whoever. But I'll tell you what, if you don't get the foundation right, it's pretty darn hard to even move to the next level. Um, yeah. So, you know, the techniques are the, it's like reading and writing. 
you know and you know that that that's the language of the of of you know of education if you can't if you can't read and write well you can't advance in academia right or, or, or in education well it's the same thing here the 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 technical skills are the dna of a, of a football player that's what that's basically how you build the rest of the parts of the game on so there's a question and there's a, a debate about well what's the best way of teaching kids it's through you know um, you know just throw them into games it's uh, you know teaching is it teaching the, the tactical side teaching um, you know it's just there's like just a hundred different arguments about it right and I mm. just say it's very simple you know get kids to obsess on ball mastery from a very very young age and play a lot of small sided games that's it from from six to twelve. That's my curriculum. You know, I'd like to say that I've got like a thick curriculum that's, you know, like 50 pages to teach mm. a kid, but I don't. It's basically basically master the ball and then basically uh, uh, give them a lot of practice. So that's when that just let them play actually works. When the kid has technical skills, if you've got 10 kids that have great technical skills, yeah, you can just set the pitch up, play five yeah. versus five. Yeah. And the kid's going to learn a lot of different things. But now we force, we for, there's so much over coaching going in the, on the game. It's ridiculous. There's so much coaches education, so many coaching courses going on. There's mm -hmm. so many different systems of play. There's different tactics. There's different, there's the Belgium way. There's the Dutch way, the French way, the Spanish way, the Brazilian way, the German yeah. way. There's like every way, but no way, you know? And yeah. the reality is, is that the technical skills have no way. There's no cultural there's no way that you stop and start and turn with a ball like a spanish way or a french way the technical yeah. skills are the same yeah and this is where football goes a bit astray you know and all the money gets poured into the top end at the elite side when most kids can't transfer the ball from the right foot to the left or can't do a simple one two yeah <laughs> yeah yep. uh shivan you you want to ask something are you there still shivan is he there shivan gone on mute we might okay. have lost them huh <laughs> no, it's still it's been shown on the screen anyway uh yeah thanks for that uh tom so yeah you did talk about um the technical ball mastery and stuff like that um but like i said before how to keep that interest uh, going after a certain age you can say six to twelve you do that and then um at maybe teenage, late teenagers, uh, 15, 16, 17, how do you keep that interest still in those kids? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of the problems is, as I said earlier, is, is that a majority of kids don't ever get past the ball mastery side. They don't get past the technical side. They're not good enough. Mm -hmm. And you got to realize that the older you get, the bigger you become, the stronger and the faster you become, the higher you climb the football pyramid, um, the less fun it is if you're not good, right? You can take a little six-year-old, and I've done this because I've got mm -hmm. kids. Yeah, remember, I still got I've got kids that are 10 and 13 years old, so I'm watching it. I'm on the front lines. I go to their practices. I go to their games, mm -hmm. and so I see other six-year-olds, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds these last you know decade, this last 10 years with my own kids. And you can take a six-year-old; they can go out and run around on a pitch, and they don't even touch the ball. But nobody mm -hmm. gives them the ball. They chase it. They, they, and then they'll come off the pitch, and you can ask them, did you have a good time? And they'll give you a high five, and they'll smile, and they'll say yes, mm -hmm. because that's what kids do. Yeah. But when they get a little bit older, and they get to be eight or nine years old, and every time they get the ball, they get the ball stripped from them. 
Every yeah. time someone else has the ball, they never pass to them. Yeah. I mean, that's when the fun factor goes up. Now, I, I tell people I have a pretty good feeling it's probably not the best kids that are quitting. So mm-hmm. when you talk about the 14, 15, 16-year-olds, you're probably not getting the kid who's wearing number 10, who's starting every game that's going to be quitting. It's mm-hmm. the kid that's on the bench that's not playing a lot that probably becomes disenfranchised because now it's turning into more competitive, right? In Japan, it's a real big problem because it's a there's a very elitist society here. Yeah. Football, football is just a completely, and sports in general is an elite pursuit here mm-hmm. in Japan. Mm-hmm. And outside the elite um, part of the game, it's even difficult to find teams to play with in Japan. So mm-hmm. they've got a big dropout rate after the age of 12 because the kids that just want to pl- stay in it. To, you got to realize in a lot of these cultures here in Asia, they look at sport as a bit different. They look at it almost like, like, uh, like physical education, like a discipline. Right. Mm, yeah. So, you know, that's that's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother conversation. Australia, yeah. countries like Australia, America, where I come from, you know, sports got a bit of a different connotation, a different meaning to Americans and Australians than it might have to Chinese people. OK, yeah. but that's a different thing. But getting back to your question, I mean, you know, I see a lot of the surveys coming out of these countries, whether it's Australia or America or some of the English speaking ones about, you know, the dropout rate. And they point the rifles at, like, you know, the parents, the coaches. But I never see in the survey the question where they say, do you think, you, do you think you're no good? Do you think yeah, you're lousy? Yeah. You know? that's, not a, that's, not in the, that's not on the multiple, um, you know, the, the, the answers. There's not a, you know, C. Um, you know, is A, you don't like your coach. B, your parents too pushy. C, you think you suck. You know, yeah. I mean, there's nobody, yeah. there's no question like that on there, right? So. That's that's part of the problem, right? Is I don't think that we're really being kind of honest with ourselves of the main reason of of why a lot of these kids. Now, not to say that you know in certain countries the coaching isn't good enough or there are pushy parents like I know in Australia and America. But mm-hmm. again, my whole focus and my whole kind of world is just: Are we doing a good enough job teaching the basics to kids to set them up for success? And the resounding answer for me is no. No, yeah, and so that's my world that I'm living in. Yeah, that, that's a very um, valid point, Tom. Because uh, I was also actually ma- the assistant manager for a men's team. So the, I'm talking. I'm not talking about the kids. It's a men, like grown-up men in there. So uh, in that in that particular team, we had people not even looking up to before they make a pass. So uh, you could see that they were not uh, taught the basics right. So I had to go through the basics of looking up um, before they pass, looking up yep. uh, <laughs> when the ball is traveling to their feet, have a look around the surrounding, have a check, and before they pass, have a check. Uh, even even without the ball, have a check of what's happening around. Um, so I had to go through these basic things with the men. And so I can understand how it would be like um, <laughs> for the kids. So. You know, you know, when you look at a country, if you look at like, let's say the even England, right, the Premier League, if you're talking about Man City or anything else, yeah, the amount of kids that will become professionals, it's zero point zero 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 four. So it's not even one percent. So, I mean, if you look at that, but if you look at also the amount of money, the energy, the resources that go into trying to affect that 0.00 and 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 at the end of the day it still comes out to 0.0004 so 
I mean, the reality is, is that the elite world has to come to grips with what they're doing doesn't work. I mean, mm. if you look at, you know, if, 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 if well, let's frame it a different way. If, if we were to believe all the different methodologies that the elites are telling us that their way of doing things, well, how come they have such a terrible success rate? You know, okay. and, right. and so the reality is, is that, you know, all the money, all the research, uh, uh, the resources, everything's going into that top end. And very little goes into the bottom end that's comparable with what's happening at the top end. Look at a country like Iceland. So, for example, I'm invited yeah. to Iceland in uh, September. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give their uh, give a, a keynote speech at their coaches um, annual symposium. Mm-hmm. They've invited me yeah. to Reykjavik in September. I think it's on the 11th or 12th. Yeah. And um, and I've so I've studied a lot of their work. They they did away with all elite programs. There's no elite programs in Iceland. It's mm-hmm. all grassroots. Everything's thrown into the grassroots, you know. Yeah. So certain countries have to be very, very creative, innovative, um, because they 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 lack they lack many things, right? They lack many things such as even just climate to be able to play all year round outside. Yeah. Um, there's just many different things. So every country is a little bit different, right? Um, yeah. And if you look at countries like Croatia, uh, Uruguay, these are countries with only three, four million populations, but yet. They produce some of the best players in the world, yeah. and they're in the top top ten countries in the world all the time. At a at a two hundred and eleven FIFA member associations, seven out of the ten countries in the FIFA top eleven uh, top ten seven out of eleven have populations less than something like uh, seven million people or ten million Ooh. people. I mean, it's just it's astounding. Yeah, yeah it's astounding. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and how, how many of so, those teams so, have won the World Cup? I like. At the elite level. Exactly. Well, first of all, there's only eight countries that have ever won a World Cup out of yeah. 211, right? That's Uruguay, Brazil, Argentina, that's Germany, that's Spain, that's Italy, France, and England, right? right? Yep. So if you look at those eight, first of all, none of none of those countries have ever won a World Cup with a foreign coach, mm. first of all. And none of those countries, no countries won a World Cup that doesn't border another country that's won a World Cup, except if you take England. But if we take the English Channel as a border, well, they border as well, right? France, Spain. So what I'm driving at is is that there's a culture piece there, and culture is very, very important. And when everybody's on the same page and they're listening to the same music, they're reading the same books, they're eating the same food, they're speaking the same language – they're doing everything together, and when you break that down into football and you get everybody on the same page, I mean, the reason that Japan does so well is because there's a culture in place that's conducive to developing players. The coaching here, the little secret in Japan is, is that the coaching here isn't any better than it is in America or in Australia. In fact, I'd challenge it and say that probably at the elite level uh, that the coaching is better both in the United States and Australia than mm. it is in Japan. But yet we produce better technical players here and also in Korea. Why? Because a six-year-old, when he crosses over the line into organized play, it's socially accepted and culturally accepted that that child's going to train four times a week for two hours, two and a half hours a session, 52 weeks a year. You yeah. got down in Australia, you got down in Australia, and the, the recreational teams that play, they only play 18 weeks a year. Yeah, eighteen weeks. Yeah, yeah that's community clubs, what they call. Yeah, you yeah. call them community clubs. So yeah. listen to this, and a lot of those clubs, because I know, because we work with them, 
mm. in Sydney. We got a program in Sydney, Melbourne, and and um, the Central Coast. Yeah. And I know because I've got guys down there, and I talk to them every day. Mm. And the reality is, is that even in those community clubs, when they have the season, eighteen weeks or twenty weeks, they only practice once a week for an hour. Yeah, once a week. So that's yeah. ten. That, so so if you do the mathematics. That basically is the equivalent of going to school three days a week for a yeah. year. Yeah. And, and and the people at the FA and the professionals are, are scratching their heads trying to think, well, where are the players? Why? I mean, it's just, it's almost insanity. But, <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. You know, in Australia is a very good case because, case study, because, you know, back uh, 20 years ago when you had the golden generation, you know, it was the envy of, of all of Asia. I mean, the amount of players that were being exported to Europe mm. was ridiculous. They were great players. And the reason why, for me at least, football started at home. You know, yeah. if you look at the cultures, the Serbs, the Croats, the Italians, the English, Scottish, um, basically they immigrated over from Europe and kids were basically being taught at home by fathers, grandfathers, could be mothers or cousins or uncles, but it started with the families. Mm. And the reality is, is that football doesn't start at home as much anymore in Australia. And no, so it it's become a big business like it is in America. Mm. Um, and so, you know, what you see is what you get. You know, it's not really that complicated for me, but people are trying to make it very complicated, thinking that, ah, well, we've got to have, you know, we've got to bring the model in from Europe. or We've got to bring the, you know, a certain coaching methodology over or we've got to have a... You know, it's just it's like every it's 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 like the flavor of the month always, right? So yeah, stick to the basics, get kids as good as they can be from a young age, lots of small sided games, and then after twelve years of age, that's when you start applying all the science to it, or at least more of you know the more competitive side, the more elite side. But you know, when you've got in 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 Australia, one of the problems is the gap between and and Malaysia, same thing, Malaysia, mm. Singapore, all of Asia. The yeah. problem is the the gap between the very best and the worst kid is like the Pacific Ocean. It's too big. Yeah. Yeah. But the gap between the best and the worst kid in Spain or in Brazil or in France or in you know a lot of the other football that that gap is very tiny. Now battery, please charge. You know. Yeah. So, somebody's mobile. Somebody's mobile is auto's charge, I guess. <laughs> yep, not mine. Please charge. There it is again. <laughs> yeah. That's our that's the advertisement for uh, for your program. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please charge. Shivan, you're back. Ready? Is he there? Gone again? Oh, gone again. Okay. He's playing he's playing games with us. Yeah, I think he's gone to get, uh, get the charge charger, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so, how do you get these uh, get the participation rate from a young age? Yeah. Mm. Is it? Is it? Well, there's, there's, because, uh, there's different. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm, yeah. All this different. You know. Again, there's no real one size fits all. When I work, I work. First of all, I work in different layers. I work in different segments. I've worked for the past few years with the Chinese government. Um, the Ministry of Education that oversees football development. Um, I've worked with federations as well. I've worked with professional clubs, amateur and, and pro. And I work with different brands and media partners, right? So it's a it's kind of a, um, it's a little of everything. You know, that's why if you can get into a country, um, I think that's why we had a lot of success here in Japan because we're on TV, 
we're in the magazines, we're in the comic books, we're in the newspapers, we're doing events all over Japan, we're creating content, we've got schools, we've got camps, and it's all the same thing, man. Technique, technique, technique. That's the whole mantra. And we built a culture here. We built a culture that understood that the entry level for the sport is very technical. It's based around ball mastery. And so if you understand that and you can create a strategy like that, the problem is, is that in developing countries, mm -hmm. most of the country's federations, their coaches' education and their technical departments have been outsourced. They've been mm -hmm. outsourced to professionals from Europe usually sometimes South America, but mostly from Europe. So as I said earlier, I mean, these guys come and there's not that I've got friends that work in these countries as well, technical directors in some of the big countries around Asia. But what happens is, is that they come, they land in the country. Very often than not, they don't speak the, the local language. Yeah. It takes them a year or two to just kind of, you know, figure out what their left and their right is. A lot of politics are involved. Mm -hmm. um, they come here and I think they're astonished and, and perplexed at the level of kids that are playing in the country because, you know, you can bring as many methodologies and systems as you want in your briefcase, but a lot of them don't apply if the kid can't transfer the ball from the left or the right or do a simple overlap, yeah. you know, or, or, or just can't even hold the ball. Um, mm. And so, so that's the reality. I mean, you can't solve something tactically that the player can't execute technically. Right. So I think this is what happens. And then, it goes around, you know, it's like, it's like a revolving door. It's like, you know, these countries, they just go around. It's almost like they're on an endless treadmill and they're not going anywhere. And then mm -hmm. after a couple of years, when another country wins a world cup or, or a country does something significant, then they think, well, okay, well, we need the coach that came from that country that because country, he worked yeah. in the federation and they won the world cup or they played in the final. So therefore we need our technical director needs to come from there. And it's, yeah. so it's just, you know, it's, it's just a lack of understanding on how development takes place. You yeah, know, it's, it's, it's I say, you know, mo most countries have exactly what they need to actually build the base and the foundation. They just don't know it. Yeah, I, all, I tell, a, a, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just telling that it, it all comes down to following the basics, sticking to the basic and getting that, that right first. It's putting a strategy in place. You can't build the house without the basement, right? And, or the yeah. foundation, even. The basement is the foundation, right? But the problem is, is that every all these countries in Asia, they mm. believe that they believe that they're one coach away from qualifying for World Cup. You know, okay. so it's like, oh, okay, we'll bring in the three million dollar guy and put him in the Philippines, <laughs> or we'll put him in Malaysia, or in India, or in Indonesia, or you know, in Australia as well. You know, I mean, they're. They're always thinking that they're one coach away from doing something extraordinary, yeah, right? Or, yeah. <laughs> or if you're if you're at the higher echelon, they think they're one coach away from actually winning the actual World Cup, right? But <laughs> if you look at the data, though, if you look at the data and you know a little bit about you know development and you know a little bit about the history of the AFC Asian Football Confederation, you'll know that I think it was back since 1998 or so or 94. No country in AFC has qualified for a World Cup tournament without first qualifying for either the under-17 or the under-20. Mm, so yeah. that means, people, if you're listening out there, for the 47-member associations in AFC, if you're not qualifying in the under-16 AFC and going to the under-17 World Cup or the under-19 AFC and going to the under-20 World Cup, well, I'm, I'm sorry to break the news to you, but 
the statistics just say that you won't qualify for a World Cup tournament. So if you understand that, and you know, never say never, but if you understand that, then you might want to start, you might want to flip the pyramid and start figuring out, okay, well, how can we build? You know, what countries ought to do is they ought to focus on trying to win a World Cup, but the wrong, the, the, not the World Cup that everybody thinks. They should, they should think about winning a World Cup for the, for, for the under-17s. Yeah. Because, or not even just winning it, but qualifying for it. But you very rarely hear countries like that talk about it. It's always like China. Oh, we want to win a World Cup. Really? Well, you know, <laughs> when was the last time you played an under-17 other than the time you hosted it? So, I mean, there's just, you know, there's things that two and two doesn't, doesn't add up. It doesn't equal four in football, you know. And um, so it's the old saying, you know, I heard once at a marketing thing. It's like, uh, you know, show me the numbers first before I listen to your baloney, you know. <laughs> and, and, and that's the truth, right? That's the truth. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then definitely. Um, I think Shivan's ready now. Yeah, Shivan, you back. Go ahead. Okay, all right then. 